Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. I'm waiting on my uh, sermon. I went to uh, grab my iPad. I love uh, Google Documents. Type it in computer and automatically shows up on everything else. And so I open up my iPad and it's utterly dead this morning. So it's been charging and my son just went to get it. Uh, I will say this while we're waiting. Um, it's, today is what, when we would normally celebrate Promotion Sunday. Anybody remember that? Back when school was normal? And we would, we would have the children from different Sunday school classes come up here and we would uh, assign them to their new classes and new teachers and uh, give them an encouraging hand as they went to their classes. And we'd recognize the new solid rockers and everything. Um, but uh, we're not having Sunday school right now. And so I, I want to take just a second to uh, tell you that we are working on something. I mean, we, are, we do kind of have... Thank you, son. Let's hear it for Riley, everybody. What, what a great... <laughs> he loves it when I do stuff like that. Uh, we're working on this. We, we really are uh, trying to um, keep you safe, honor the recommendations uh, of, of certain agencies, and I haven't said a whole lot about this lately or written to you about it, and I need to give you some updated uh, things that I've encountered. I am well aware, very well aware, that there is a wide range of opinion. I'm not talking out there, I'm talking about in here about how seriously we need to take this whole COVID thing. I don't know if you've paid attention, but the, they're tightening things down a little bit again, uh, especially now that school's in, in session. There are limited closures of restaurants and things like that. And, you know, the reports are coming out. Uh-oh, cases are on the uptick again. Uh, I did just see an excellent study. This was actually done in Indiana, where it really, uh, it really I think, is, is the way it ought to be done, a wide-ranging, random testing that gave you a pretty good idea of just how widespread it is and just how dangerous it is. Uh, and again, from a worldly standpoint, you need to know, uh, you need to be reminded that this isn't something to fool with. It is not the plague. It is not uh, a death sentence by a long shot, but it is also not the flu. No matter what uh, talking head you listen to, this is something that medically speaking is considerably more dangerous. And so we don't want to fool with this, but we also don't want to forget who we are, right? We're the people of God. We are the healed of God. Jesus Christ has borne those stripes and he's borne our sicknesses and our diseases, just like he has provided our salvation. In fact, it is part of the salvation package, our healing our provision, our protection, all of those things are ours because Jesus Christ has qualified us for those things. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about this actually a little bit in the message. Meanwhile, I encourage you not, uh, not just to continue to wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, utilize the masks, especially when we're out there fellowshipping. We've got your distance in here, so it's not quite as necessary. But if you're coughing or sneezing, by all means, keep that mask on you. Uh, but also, from a faith perspective, don't get lazy about this. You need to be diligent. More diligent than you should be about washing your hands or anything else, you need to be diligent about speaking God's word over yourselves. 
all right? There are all sorts of things, wonderful things that God has promised us, that God has provided for us, but we have to exercise faith to bring those manifestly into our lives. We just saying, I'm going to see a victory. Well, the victory is already won. It's not like I have to win a victory. It's not like God has to win a victory. We just need to see it, right? And there are things we can do to bring, the, bring God's promises and that victory manifestly into our lives. Amen? Praise the Lord. Uh, let's, um, good morning. That's my first note, and I'm glad I have my iPad. I would have forgot to say that. Good morning, Living Word Family Church. Good morning to those of you listening at home. If you are part of Living Word Family Church and you are at home, we miss you. And if you are looking for a church, we want you to know the doors are open, and we would love uh, to see you all here as soon as possible. Uh, church isn't church unless we are assembled. I saw, a, uh, saw an interesting post from a good pastor friend of mine a week or so ago where he said, the more you miss church on Sundays the less you miss church on Sundays. You know what I mean? The more you miss it, the more you're not here, the less you miss it as in long to be there. And some, one of the comments said, uh, and this is from somebody I didn't know, and I normally don't wade into stuff like this, and I normally don't comment on anybody's post I don't know, but one, one uh, person posted on there, I have church inside of me every week. And I just commented, no, you don't. And I didn't hear back from her or anything else. But, you know, I understand what she meant. I have a spiritual relationship with God. I commune with God. I pray. I have a spiritual experience. Yeah, no problem. It ain't church. Church is the assembly, right? We need to assemble when we can, amen, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So it's good to be here, right? Amen. We are coming very close to wrapping up this series on staying the course. I don't think we will quite get there today, but we might. Depends on how fast I can talk, how little I stray, and how fast you listen, but looks like we'll not quite get there. But as we wrap this up, uh, this series on staying the course, we are going to come to another potentially difficult passage. And we'll read that first part of that in a moment. But first, I want to look back briefly over the stuff we've covered in this letter. The author of this letter, the human author, the author is God, right? Remember, this is the Word of God. And the author of this letter, you may have picked up on this somewhere in the last few weeks, but I happen to think that it's Paul. Anybody pick up on that in the last few weeks? Okay. Uh, again, it doesn't matter, still the Word of God, and he is writing to Jewish converts to Christianity. And these believers are, because of persecution, uh, teetering on the edge of abandoning their newfound faith. They are not, like the Corinthians, for example, uh, slipping back into gross sin, sexual misconduct, and that sort of thing, the things that the Corinthians clearly were dealing with, uh, a, a there, it's, this is not a uh, slide into uh, an immora immoral lifestyle. Uh, what they are considering when they talk about, when they are considering abandoning their faith is sliding back into Judaism, getting back under the law. And this is to be differentiated from the Galatians, who also, you know, Paul wrote to them a lot about the law too, but their problem was they were uh, Gentile converts to Christianity, and then these Jewish believers came into their midst and say, we're glad you're Christians like us, but you skipped a step. You need to be circumcised. You need to embrace the law and do these things too. And Paul's writing, no, salvation is for the Jew and the Greek, uh, and there is no more division. There is no Jew nor Greek in Christ Jesus. So uh, that, was a different, that was a different problem. Again, in this case, I guess in simplest terms, these Jewish believers had certain expectations of what was going to happen when they became Christians. 
and when it was going to happen. And these expectations, frankly, were not unlike the expectations that the disciples had. You remember all these conversations that Peter and James and John and these others had with Jesus. Oh, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? When you come into your kingdom, can I sit on this side of you? They really thought, they were utterly convinced that since he was the Messiah, that meant that he was there to restore Israel to its greatness, put Rome under their feet and everybody else, and they were going to be right there uh, as part of his cabinet, I guess. All right? And they didn't understand that Jesus' mission was much, much bigger than that. That he was ushering in a, not just a new kingdom, but a new kind of kingdom. Uh, so they kind of had this expectation too. Jesus is the Messiah. Things are going to start looking up for us. Um, and they found that Jesus, rather than coming right back, they were still waiting. And rather than Rome being under their feet, things had actually begun to get even harder for them. They were suffering persecution as Christians that they didn't necessarily suffer as Jews. And so they're considering this return to Judaism. And this letter is all about how Christ is superior to everything that they once held in such high esteem. Jesus is superior. This is all from the letter. He's superior to Abraham. He's superior to Moses, to the law itself. He's superior to the priesthood and even superior to angels. Every time an aspect of Jewish worship is brought up, Hebrews points the reader to Jesus. And this argument reaches its peak in chapter 12, and the argument says, how can you even consider turning your back on Jesus after everything he's done for you? Knowing how much he loves you and knowing exactly how he demonstrated that love, the cross, How can you walk away from him? Not, he's stressing again, you're not walking away from a doctrine. You're not walking away from a ritual or a religion. You're walking away from Jesus Christ himself. And last week, we looked at, right after that, it talks about the chastening of the Lord and how we endure chastening, which is what? It's instruction. It's it's corrective instruction, but there's also it takes, you know, there's also all the way up to scourging, but mostly this passage is about chastening uh, and how we endure that at the hands of our earthly fathers, imperfect as they are, and we even respect them, continue to hold them in high regard. Yet, when our perfect Heavenly Father chastens us, there's a tendency, unfortunately, to get mad, we get weary, we get discouraged. And again, we should rejoice that God loves us enough to correct us and to instruct us. And we wrapped up last week with an explanation of how Esau, you know, there's that kind of confusing passage where it says uh, he sought the blessing and and he he sought repentance and was unable to repent, though he sought it with tears. And we, we, we sliced that up and showed you that it wasn't that Esau desperately wanted to repent and God wouldn't let him. It was that Esau desperately wanted the blessing but couldn't bring himself to repent. It wasn't repentance he sought with tears. It was the blessing he sought with tears but was unable to turn back to God, even turn back fully to his father to receive that blessing. Now, uh, for the rest of this chapter, beginning in Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to a blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded 
and this is the command, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable, innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Okay, this is, of course, a reference to Sinai. This when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And, uh, and then Moses brought it to the people. And we picture that, remember the reading that and, and how the mountain shook and there was fire and smoke and uh, the thundering voice of God from heaven. And it was, on one hand, this magnific magnificent display of the power and the glory of God. It was visible, it was audible, it was, you could, it, it was utterly uh, experienced by all the physical senses. And on the other hand, it's this, it's kind of a microcosm of what the law itself would do. At that moment when God manifested his glory on Sinai and the people trembled and they even said, we don't want to hear this voice anymore. And then they weren't allowed to touch the mountain, not so much as an animal. What did this demonstrate? It just showed how vast the gulf was between sinful people and a holy God. It was a visible and audible display of God himself on the scene, and yet in that display, he's saying, you can't touch me. You are unholy. And he gives them the law that says what? You're unholy. Here's what holiness looks like. Here's what you need to be in my presence. And again and again and again, we see Israel failing to keep the law. And again and again and again, if we read it humbly, we see how the whole point of the law was to show us that we could never get to God by ourselves. The whole point of the Old Testament, if you remember when we went, back, when we went through the Old Testament, well, the purpose of the law was to point man to Christ, to show us how lost we are without a Savior. And now by contrast... We now, because of the blood of Christ, because he fulfilled the law and made the final once and for all sacrifice, we are made clean, made holy in him, and we are fit for the company of angels and the presence of God himself. Who are we? We are just men made perfect. We are justified because of the finished work of God. This is the difference. This is what Hebrews is saying here. This is a different experience. Yes, that was magnificent. It was powerful. It was spectacular. But what was the result? Just a concrete recognition that you are separate from God. Now what? Because of the blood of Christ, we enter the presence of God in the company of angels, in the company of the rest of the church, and we are celebrating because we are qualified for the presence of God in Jesus Christ himself. And toward the end of that passage, we remember in Hebrews 11, even though we kind of, we didn't break down the hall of faith, but that's what Hebrews 11, it gives example after example. And it makes a, a reference in Hebrews chapter 11 of Abel's blood and how the blood of Abel still speaks. You know, the blood of Abel, who was, you remember, the first murder victim in history, 
What did the blood of Abel, Abel speak? It called out for vengeance, right? And for justice. And the blood of Christ speaks of justification, speaks of forgiveness, speaks of right standing with God. Again, why do you want to go back to the law when the blood of Christ speaks of so much better things? It might be hard for you right now, but without Christ, you are going to have to stand before God on your own merits. You're going to have to justify yourself. The righteousness is going to have to be your own righteousness, and you will absolutely be found wanting. So what you're trading off is an eternity in the joyous presence of Jesus Christ for a life here and now that might in fact be easier. It might be more pleasant from moment to moment. But that's pretty short-sighted, isn't it? You're going to trade off eternity for this. That is Esau. What good is my blessing? What good is my birthright? I'm hungry now. Now, now we get to the kind of difficult passage, and I'll tell you up front that some of the difficulty in this case is due to certain translations. But let's read it, and then we'll talk about it. Still in chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shall shake, not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, many translations, uh, including the one I normally read out of in church, the New King James Version, when they uh, are using the word him to speak of God, they capitalize the H in him. Uh, I think this is a good practice because it makes it clarifies certain passages. But here we read of him who spoke on earth versus him who speaks from heaven. You see, if they were in trouble for refusing to listen to him who spoke on earth, capital H, how much more are we in trouble for refusing to listen to him who speaks from heaven? The problem is the uh, New King James, King James, and others both hymns are capitalized, but what? It's the same hymn, isn't it? If we read it this way. Uh, and uh, I understand there's a different set of circumstances, but even taking that into consideration, it just becomes more confusing because on Sinai, God spoke from heaven, even though his voice was heard on earth. In Jesus, God spoke on earth. And the answer is really pretty straightforward, and most of you probably have it figured out, especially if you have a, a New American Standard Bible or, or one, a message or another paraphrase. Uh, the first hymn simply should not be capitalized. That should be a small h. The hymn it's talking about first is Moses, not God. At least that's the way I see it. It makes the most sense that way. Uh, and it's another way of saying if they were in trouble for disobeying the law of Moses... 
How much more trouble are we if we refuse the Son of God? See? The law was perfect, but the law was bad news for us. It was bad news for them. The gospel is good news. So how much more should we embrace the good news considering how faithfully the Jews clung to the law even though they couldn't keep it? They still religiously respected it. They still identified themselves by it. They just couldn't keep it. And they still didn't abandon their faith. How much more should we, uh, as inheritors of the good news of the gospel of grace, how much more should we not abandon that? And again, it's not a that. It's a him. And it talks about this shaking. The shaking that it's referring to, this is a quote from Haggai. Uh, chapter 2, and it, that is a messianic prophecy. It's talking about Jesus in, in Haggai. This is not, I, I say that because when you read about shaking the heavens and earth, a lot of times imagery from Revelation and Second Peter come up where he talks about the new heavens and the new earth and the heavens melting away and everything being recreated. That's, that's going to happen, but that's not what he's talking about here. This is a prophecy that had already taken place when Hebrews was written. And it's saying that the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an absolute game changer. It changed the world. It is significant not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. Uh, history itself turns on Jesus Christ. Uh, I've, I've whined about this before, but you know, it, it's, it, it is very interesting to me. That in most cultures today, history is still divided between before Christ and, and Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. A lot of times people get confused. What about the, if A.D. means after death, then what about the 33 years there? A.D. doesn't mean after death, it means Anno Domini, Latin for in the year of our Lord. So before Christ and after his birth. This is what B.C. and A.D. are all about. And now, of course, what do they call it? B.C.E. and C.E. Before Common Era and uh, common era. I think that's what it means. Is that right? Or current era, some, it's depending on who you, who you read after. Okay, but still, what's the dividing line? It's exactly the same thing. This is how much Jesus shook things up, shook everything up. And this is just on earth, how that shaking took place, how all of history is divided between Old Testament and New Testament, even to those who don't embrace it. But how did it shake the heavens? It affected everything, right? Uh, you can even find, I do, an allusion to the star of Bethlehem. You know, it was the star, a star nobody had seen, or an arrangement of stars in the heaven nobody had seen that led uh, certain wise men to seek him out, and they weren't even Jews. Uh, but it also means that, that man is now fit for heaven. This is something that wasn't true before. You know, angels marveled and celebrated the incarnation. They knew how much that changed, not just man, not just earth, but heaven itself. Heaven was now going to be populated with people, humans. And this new order, this new kingdom, cannot be shaken. And since that's true, we absolutely can serve God in a way that is utterly acceptable to him but don't forget something. We are made righteous. We are justified in his presence 
but this is all because of Jesus. His blood, his death, his resurrection, and only that is what qualifies us for all the good things that God has promised us. And I'm talking about his making you righteous is what qualifies you for healing, for protection, and for provision. These are ours only because of the finished work of Christ. And you need to remind yourself of that when you pray. When you go to God with a need and say, say it is, may you need a physical healing. Start by thanking him for the finished work of Christ. I always, always say, thank you, Father. I always start with the blood before I move to the stripes. I thank you for the blood of Christ, which makes me righteous and qualifies me for every promise you make to the righteous man. And I thank you for the stripes on the back of Jesus that specifically purchased my healing. And now, as a man made righteous by the blood of Christ, I claim that healing that was paid for with those stripes. And I receive it by faith in Jesus' name. Everything that you need, every promise God made is only yours, only yours because of the blood. Your goodness and your behavior is important, but it has nothing to do with earning and qualifying yourself for the blessings and the promises of God. We got that? Salvation itself, of course, is like that. And God paid for it all. It's done, it's finished, but remember he is still God. He is our father and he loves us more than any earthly father ever loved his children. But he is God. He is absolutely concerned with how we serve him. The most loving father who ever walked the earth is still concerned with how his children honor him, correct? I'm going to tell a story. You're going to have to bear with me. It's one of my favorite stories from my childhood. I don't think I've told it in a couple years. Uh, and that means there are at least a few people here who have never heard it. So those of you who've heard it five, six, 20 times, you're going to have to uh, bear with me. And, this, uh, and I like this story. It's burned into my memory because of how afraid I was when this happened to me as a child. And I, it, this Obviously, it didn't have spiritual significance to me at the time, but it has since then many times for me given me a great picture of, of, of a view of God the Father. And this is when I was, I don't know, I want to say I was seven years old. And my dad had taught me to light matches. It's awesome responsibility and my favorite job <laughs> yeah, as a, uh, all my fellow pyro pyromaniacs out there. Uh, he taught me to do that so that I could burn the trash. And that really motivated me to take out the trash because I loved burning the trash. I loved lighting that fire. And he gave me the speeches, don't throw aerosol cans in there, don't stick your head over the burn barrel, light it and walk away, let it burn, just make sure it's not, you know, it's not falling out of the barrel or anything. And, but I knew how to light those matches. And I had been busted once or twice, you know, messing with an oily rag behind the garage with uh, some, some uh, derelict kid in the neighborhood who would urge me on to those things. But one day, by myself, I had, uh, I don't know where I got it, drugstore someplace. It was a little uh, fire, firecracker type of thing. And I think it was called a grasshopper. And what you did was you lit it and you threw it on the ground and it would pop and it would jump pop and it would kind of bounce around but it was all noise and I was more into sparks and flame and fire right so this this wasn't as uh, as fun so I 
I lit another one, and every time it popped and landed, I would squirt charcoal starter on it. This is in the garage, by the way. And I'm dancing around the garage following this thing. <laughs> Until it popped seven or eight times, and then the garage floor was on fire. It's concrete floor, but it's not going out. There's a lot of fire on the floor, and I am panicking. So I run outside, and I grab the hose, and I came in, and I sprayed it. And there's that freaky moment where the fire kind of floats on the water, uh, where I could just envision it, and it didn't. The garage did not burn down, but it was a mess. There were ashes and, of course, water everywhere. But the danger was past, and now I just had to clean my mess up. So I went and got a mop sponge mop from the house and I mopped the garage floor and put the mop away and crisis averted. Praise the Lord. Isn't that a great story? No, I'm not done with it, am I? Then my mom comes in to where I'm watching TV. I even think I remember the Munsters were on TV. And she said, Scott, why is the garage floor all wet? I didn't expect her to see that because this was, a, this was not an attached garage. But she had seen it. She maybe had seen the whole thing. I don't know. Why is the garage floor all wet? And I said, I said, I just decided to mop the garage floor. <laughs> you believe she didn't buy it? And she said, Scott, there are ashes on the garage floor too. What happened? And I came up with this really clever response. I said, Are you going to tell Dad? I knew I was busted, and that was my biggest fear at that moment. What is dad going to say when he gets home? And she said, we'll see. Now, turns out she didn't. Turns out my dad learned that story the first time I told it from the pulpit. <laughs> but I've done some thinking about that. I had a couple hours of agony waiting on dad to get home from work because I didn't know how he was going to respond. But I knew he wasn't going to say, well done, thou good and faithful son. But then, the seven-year-old lawyer pops up in my mind and says, but wait, Scott, your dad never specifically told you not to squirt charcoal starter all over the garage floor while you played with firecrackers. How were you supposed to know that was wrong? We know better, though, don't we? How do I know I was wrong? Here's how I know. If my dad were with me, listen, there's a big difference here. If my dad were with me, I wouldn't even think about doing it. It's not like I'd be standing there with these matches and this charcoal starter and this firecracker thinking, if only my dad would leave, I could squirt this stuff all over the garage floor and have fun time with fire. I'm not thinking that at all. It only occurred to me because I was by myself, not thinking about my father or anybody else. Do you see how practicing an awareness of God's presence 
doesn't just keep you from sinning, but keeps you from desiring to sin. It's not sin consciousness that I'm preaching. But when we are conscious, on purpose, of the presence, and is he always there, isn't he? Seems like I read somewhere, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We know he sees everything we do. He knows everything that we do. But we can just sort of shut off our awareness. That's what we do every time we sin. And it's easy to do because he is an invisible God for now. Now, what was I afraid of? In that, those two hours of limbo, was I afraid of my loving father? Or was I afraid of my chastiser? Or in this case, strong possibility, the one who would scourge me. I could have easily gotten a spanking out of that. This is the same guy, right? So what was I afraid of? What was I afraid of? I knew he wasn't going to disown me. My fear was not, oh no, when he finds out what I did, he'll no longer be my father. I'm going to lose my sonship. Never occurred to me. Never occurred to me. I wasn't afraid of losing him as a father. I was afraid of experiencing his displeasure and his chastisement. This is what we need to realize also when we blow it, when we sin, when we set our spiritual garage on fire. I don't know, I'm, I'm reaching here. When we blow it, there is a right way to be afraid. There is a holy fear because we can experience the momentary displeasure of God that results in chastisement and may result in scourging. But we don't need to worry about him disowning us. Thank God. Why do we ever think that? He's our father. And he's the perfect father. What kind of father says, oh, you do that one more time, you're no longer going to be my son. I know some people said that. Oh, you're dead to me. God doesn't say that. Now, can we disown him? kind of think we can. This is what we're talking about after all. It's what this, this book of Hebrews has mentioned a couple of times. Don't get to the point where you walk away from him. Don't consciously throw this away. And how could you be thinking? You held on to the law all those years. I, you can almost read the exasperation between the lines. You hung on to the law all those years despite the fact that it was bad news for you. Yes, it was true. And then you come into this glorious relationship with Jesus Christ and now things are getting a little bit hard and you want to walk away? To go back to that? Again, it's short-sighted. Now he gets it and we get it. They are experiencing momentary uh, persecution Trouble, struggle, suffering, but it's nothing to be compared with what awaits us on the other side of this thing. That's why the concluding verses in Hebrews are so important. And when we get into chapter 13, we see some instructions that are similar to those in other letters. These are instructions concerning conduct, concerning relationships, concerning authority. Let's read the first part of this chapter. And this is probably, this passage is probably as far as we'll get in the book today. Uh, in uh, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. 
Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Now, we uh, said we'll finish up for here... uh, We'll finish up with this passage today, but let me say a few things about it before we conclude. After all of the persuasion, after all the writing and the arguments pointing Jewish believers again to the person of Jesus Christ, what is the first practical application in this closing session, in this closing section? It's what? It's love one another. Let brotherly love continue. Now, remember when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was? Ravi Zacharias loved to point out that there were over 600 statutes in the Old Testament law. Uh, David narrowed it down to a dozen or so. And by the time we get to Micah, it says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, humbly with your God? There's three. And so when Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment of all, the, the, the interesting thing is that he doesn't narrow it down to one, but two. What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Two there. But don't forget, he also said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, also love one another. Now there's a whole other sermon there, and we'll get to it some other day. But again, when it's all said and done, keep on loving one another. Not just that, but be careful how you treat strangers. And that stranger has a specific meaning. We're not going to go into it now. But they just might be angels in disguise. There's a topic for another sermon. And maybe you ever think about that. I know some of you do. We've talked about it before. It's like, oh, what if that's an angel? That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you have to give $100 to everybody who's standing on a street corner holding a sign. It's not what it means at all. It means how you treat people who come into your midst. All right? Now, uh, for those of you, by the way, with a literary bent, you like to read and you like to get uh, a little bit of spiritual insight uh, from other authors, uh, get your hands on a little book. It's a collection of three short stories by Tolstoy, of all people. This is not War and Peace. These are, <laughs> these are short stories, and all three stories fit in a book about that thick. And the, the title of it is, Where Love Is, There God Is Also. Where Love Is, There God Is Also. And the title, uh, the title of that book is actually the title of one of the short stories about a guy named Martin the Cobbler. And Martin the Cobbler is an alternate title. And you might be able to find the text to that story on the internet. Check it out. But it's all about entertaining an angel unaware. Now, while the Great Commission... Uh, remember those in prison, the Great Commission absolutely applies to prison ministry. We need to be getting the word into prisons, uh, just like we should be getting it to our neighbors. But this specific exhortation, just for what it's worth, addresses those who are suffering unjustly for their faith. Okay? 
which is why we appreciate so much ministries that advocate uh, both nationally and internationally for those believers who are persecuted and unjustly incarcerated for the work of Christ. We forget that that really does happen on a regular basis all over the world. Uh, when it talks about the marriage bed being undefiled, the, the simplest truth being expressed here is that God approves of the conjugal relationship between one man and one woman who are married to one another. Uh, there are some other things that this verse talks about or that can at least be extrapolated, but it's not central to the message of staying the course and also not appropriate for young ears. And I've got to keep reminding myself that we have Sunday school students in here, as somebody reminds me almost every Sunday. Hey, Scott, did you forget we had kids in here when you said fill in the blank? Sorry. Uh, covetousness. We have to be careful here, especially as people who believe in the word of faith, when it talks about being content with such things as you have. The word of God, let me make my position clear on this, all right? The word of God could not be more clear when it says that God delights in the prosperity of his servants. Now, I know we're not his servants, but for crying out loud, if he delights in the prosperity of his servants, how much more would he delight in the prosperity of his children, right? Right? What? Somebody barged into my office recently, I won't say when, I won't say who, and lambasted me for using the word prosperity from the pulpit. All right? I, I, could, I could tell you the whole story of how this conversation went down. But the bottom line was, this is somebody who had been trained and taught and believed that the quote-unquote prosperity gospel is heretical, it's cultic, it's wrong, blah, blah, blah. And all this person heard was the word prosperity and the bells went off. Now, I used it in the context of taking up the offering. And you know what I say. I don't change the... the we might look at it from different angles. But if you've been here any length of time, you know I'm not the guy. You know I'm not the guy that says, if you will just give in faith, you will get a hundred times back every time. If you just believe God for a car, if you're going to believe God for a car, believe big. You're a king's kid. Believe for a Rolls Royce. Believe for a Maserati or a Lamborghini. He's God and you are a king's kid. You should drive a king's car. Has anybody ever heard Scott Millis preach that? Even if you think I should, have you ever heard it? That's not biblical prosperity. But the opposite error is when God talks about prosperity, he's only talking about spiritual prosperity. God is not concerned with you having money. Yes, he is. You've got to really twist Old Testament and New Testament scripture to come to any other conclusion. The whole law of sowing and reaping, you reap what you sow, you reap after you sow, and you reap more than you sow. Okay? If you sow money, you'll reap money. You can trust God with your monetary gifts. He'll make sure you have money. God is concerned with that, okay? But the danger of our camp, because I am a word of faith guy, is that uh, you know, when people asked, uh, when I was at the at the concert that, was ho that we hosted here a couple weeks ago, uh, somebody came up, several people came up and said, what kind of church are you? They were interested. In, they were so thankful that we were having this concert, even though we weren't having it. We were just where, we, where they had it. Uh, considering coming, what kind of church are you? And I said, well, 
we are a non-denominational church. And to be honest, uh, to, to the best descriptor of us is we're a word of faith church. But I always want to qualify that. I say I always been careful because word of faith means certain things to some people that it doesn't mean to everybody. And when some people say word of faith, oh, they picture every controversial caricature of the word of faith, uh, which is normally what they hear from people who are critical of the word of faith, not stuff they've heard or learned on their own. And so I always kind of want to make sure, and I'm never, I never name names, oh, just, we don't believe this guy, we don't believe this guy, we don't follow this guy. It's not that. It's just like, you know, if you need me to explain it, I will. But we're a charismatic Holy Ghost church, okay? We believe in the gifts of the Spirit and go on to explain that stuff, all right? Now, uh, I'm getting way out of line, not out of line, off my notes here, but, you know, the Word of God couldn't be more clear that He delights in our prosperity, right? He's for us. He's for us in that regard as well. But the proper exercise of faith when it comes to stuff, when it comes to money, the proper exercise of our faith is not the accumulation of wealth. That's not what faith and God's prosperity is for. It is actually the generous nature of our giving. That's what Christian prosperity looks like. It enables us to be as generous as God has been with us. It is trusting God for a continued supply so that we can be those generous people. Uh, In that context, the encouragement of I will never leave you nor forsake you, which is right here, means that we never need to fear running out of what we need. That there is always abundant supply. Now, I'm going to come back to a little bit of that here in a minute. Let me, let me say this, the part I really wanted to get to and where I take the title of this message, which is the unchanging Lord, where it says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken, spoke the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. This is talking about preachers, teachers, and pastors, okay? Honor me! Again, we have to look at the context. It is not talking about how easy their lives have been or how blessed they are. Certainly not how blessed they are with material possessions. And I'm treading again here, I'm treading very lightly because I don't want you to think that I'm on a crusade against anybody. I'm not. And let me say again, for the record, I am a word of faith guy. That means, among other things, that I believe God desires to bless me in every way, including financially, And that just as with healing, just as with protection, as I mentioned a little bit ago, just as with every promise of God, it's just because God said it doesn't mean it's going to happen to me. I have to believe it. I have to speak it. There is power in our words when we line our words up with the word of God. Uh, For it to be effective in my life, even salvation requires a confession of faith. So I do have to align my faith and my words with God's promises, God's promises to bring those things into my life. But I just believe that the message of prosperity has been misunderstood and it has been abused and it has been caricatured, again, more than any other aspect of the word of faith, the word of faith message. You know, it used to be the most controversial thing about a church like ours was tongues. Amazingly, tongues is becoming less and less controversial. I know people in traditionally non, uh, what I would call cessationist traditions of mainline denominational churches who speak in tongues. 
I know ministers who secretly speak in tongues, but they can't tell their conference or their, their overseers about that. It's less and less controversial. But prosperity seems to be becoming more and more controversial. But that's because, again, it's been abused and caricatured. The outcome of their conduct, and the reason I'm bringing this here in this passage is I've heard it, you probably have too, is wow, look at how God blessed that guy. We need to follow him. Or, even worse, look at how God has blessed me. I'm the ground you should sow into. Have you heard this? Has anybody heard this besides me? Yeah, a lot of you have. That's treading into some dangerous area there. Okay? If we're going to buy that, we'd have to look at an awful lot of other people that look blessed. We'd have to look at some very, very wealthy uh, churches and denominations that we can easily point to some things that are wrong with, that have a lot of money, that look like they're experiencing a lot of God's blessings. But what truly is the outcome? What is the outcome of their faith? They've strayed from the truth. Now, I'm not, I'm not painting with too broad a brush here. Uh, I, I don't mean to be. I mean, I, I guess I kind of am. I'm just, I'm saying, I'm certainly not saying that just because somebody has done well that they have strayed from the truth. I'm saying you don't follow their physical blessing. You follow their what? Their faith. And in the context of this passage, what does that look like? It means they don't abandon it. It means they stick with it their whole lives. That even through hardship, they don't walk away from it. That their confession stays right, that their beliefs stay right. And Paul, again, doesn't matter if he wrote this or not, Paul is the perfect example of this because he went through hardship that you and I couldn't even begin to imagine. And not only does he say, this is hard, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, and, and if I can do it, you can do it. You know, he, he, he recounts his hardship and said, ah, it's, it's hardly worth considering compared to the good stuff that waits for me in heaven. That's the right attitude. So, uh, and then when it says in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. On one hand, that means this. Please remember. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means if Jesus healed, he still heals. It means if God did miracles, he still does miracles. The God who provided still provides. And in the context of the following verses, it means that we have to be careful about chasing after some new, exciting revelation that tickles our ears, especially if no one ever thought of it before. Uh, I've shared that with you before, this, this idea that there are preachers who have, uh, some of them have just been you know, flash in the pan. Somebody who's like the hot preacher of the moment or teacher because they come up with some new, exciting way of looking at something. And for me, I can't, can't get inside your head. I don't know how God ministers to you or speaks to you moment by moment or in a, in a sermon like this. Uh, but there have been times when I've been in a message where somebody says something that makes me go, oh, wow, that's interesting. I never would have thought of that. And the next step then is sometimes, I, since I would have never thought of that about that, it must have come from God. No matter how, and then maybe it's just a step closer to heresy than I want to be. If you hear something that makes you react to, oh, wow, never would have thought of that, don't embrace it right away. Pray about it, 
discuss it with people that you trust. Don't come running around and sharing it with everybody. Look at what this man of God said. Look at what this prophet said if you, if you don't have a relationship with them and if they don't have a, a, a track record. Versus, and I used to experience this all the time sitting under Bob Yanyan, when he would share something, I would go, oh, wow. I didn't see that myself, but now I can't see it any other way. It's more of a, oh, of course that's what it means. An illumination of Scripture. It's not this, I had a revelation from God, as much as it is, I see the whole counsel of the Word of God, and this Scripture makes sense in light of this Scripture, this Scripture, and this Scripture. He was so good, God was good about using him to put the pieces of the puzzle together and bringing it all down to a point where it made sense. Now to be careful about chasing new doctrines. And, in the context of this whole letter, it means this. The same Jesus who was one with the Father before time began was the Jesus who took on flesh, who died, and who rose from the dead. This same Jesus, the very same Jesus, is who is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us right now. The same Jesus abides in you, abides in me by the Holy Spirit. He hasn't changed his love for us hasn't changed. The same love that caused, when it talked about for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He loved me at one point in time enough to go to the cross for me, and he still loves me that much, still loves you that much. He doesn't change. But his commandments also haven't changed. He will not abandon us, so for the love of all that is holy, let's don't abandon him. We may fail him from time to time. We may be chastened by him from time to time. We may be persecuted because of him from time to time. But he endured much, much worse because he loves us. How much more should we endure because we love him. Why don't you stand up with me? It isn't our desire or need to earn something from him that should drive us. It is our love for him that should drive us. Maybe you've gotten off course. Maybe. Let's start here. Maybe. You haven't started your race yet. Maybe you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I think th that your race is about to begin. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that starter's pistol goes off the moment you say amen. It's when your race begins. That's when your course begins. Maybe you started that race a long time ago. And you've gotten off course. Maybe not to the point where you're consciously abandoning the faith. But you're wandering. 
Maybe you're exploring other paths, but probably you're just wasting time. It's time to get back in the race. One of my favorite movies is uh, Casablanca. And there's a scene at the end that I love where Rick, played by Bogart, of course, finally abandons his cynicism and his selfishness, does the right thing. And then Victor Laszlo, Paul Henry, says to him, Welcome back to the fight. Welcome back to the fight. Do you need to do that? And listen, I'm not talking about simply tightening things up. A lot of times the, the, the invitation to recommit is a little, there's nothing wrong with recommitting on a weekly or daily basis. But I'm talking, uh, we all need to tighten things up from time to time, sometimes from day to day. But I'm talking about, I'm talking to the person in here, maybe more than one person, who made a confession of faith and probably still holds on to at least a shred of that faith, but who has ignored that faith and forgotten the magnitude of the decision that you've made that day. That was the most important decision you ever made, and somehow, the importance has worn off and you have strayed from the faith even if you have not yet abandoned it. Today, if you hear his voice, don't ignore it. Yield to him. Remember how much he loves you and fall in love with him all over again. So I want to ask you today, first of all, is there anybody in here you want to start your course today? I've never, I've never made that decision. I've come to a point of belief I need to give into it and make Jesus Christ my Lord today. I desire to be saved. Anybody? All right. Anybody in here say, yeah, it was that second one. I know I made a confession of faith and I've never seriously doubted my salvation, but I stopped pursuing it some time ago. I'm done wasting time. I'm getting back in the race. I'm getting back in the fight and back on course. Is that anybody else? In, is that anybody in here today? There's one. Anybody else? All right. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, sis, for your candor there. Let's, uh, let's all pray this. Let's do the, this time. We don't always do this, but I want you to just, everybody say this after me. We'll say this as just a, even though you personally uh, might not be, uh, might not have identified as a person who needs this, we're just going to say this in solidarity with uh, at least one person in our midst who confesses that that's where she's at. And maybe there's somebody else, you, you're thanking God right now. It's like, I want to pray that prayer. I just didn't want to raise my hand. Just do me a favor and let me know that was you sometime before you leave today, okay? Let's all say this. Our God and Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me enough to die for me. Forgive me, Lord, for ever forgetting how much you love me. Come into my heart in a big way. Fill me afresh, Holy Spirit, and help me love you more. I submit my life to you again. 
I declare again that you are my Lord, that you are my Savior, and that I am your child. Thank you for receiving me back, for the strength to stay on course and finish with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This has been good. This has been good. I'm going to ask you just really quickly uh, to be seated for a second, just long enough to prepare your offering. We're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, but if you need an envelope, it is Mission Sunday, right? Uh, so if you need an extra envelope, you know, we just get two separate offerings out there. I know some of you drop it in, drop it off on the way in. But if you need to make out a check, all checks get made out to Living Word Family Church, LWFC. If you need an envelope for cash, raise your hand. The ushers will give you one. Uh, and I know, again, most of you have got that prepared. But um, I want to remind you of something. You know, I used, to, I used to say quite often when we passed the plate, there, there are some who like, you shouldn't pass the plate because that, that puts pressure on people to give and they should only be giving of proper motives. And my, uh, my reason for doing that was always to emphasize the fact that the offering, the time of offering isn't, well, we're taking up a collection to pay the bills. It's not that. What is it? It's another act of worship, isn't it? It's a legitimate and very important part of our worship where we worship him with our material goods with a portion of that uh, which he's blessed us with and so this time is important and right now of course we are not physically passing the plate because of the you know touch thing and that's fine but i want to take this moment to pray over the offering as i always do and then as we dismiss wait to be dismissed uh, by the ushers we're going to go out with a song. We've got the praise and worship team up here so we can sing while we're waiting to be dismissed. We can sing as we're dismissed. But even as you drop that envelope in the receptacle out there, thank God for that opportunity. Give in faith, give cheerfully, and claim your blessing. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your presence in this place today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. I thank you for every individual in here. Thank you for the testimony, uh, testimonies that came forward today about your manifest goodness and your provision in our lives. We thank you for bodily healing today and protection not just from COVID but from everything that tries to shorten uh, our life or rob us of the quality of life that you promised. We receive by faith all of your blessings. Thank you for your protection today. Thank you for your healing and thank you Lord for prospering us, for providing abundantly for us and now we count it as always a privilege to give into the work of your kingdom. I pray that every penny that's given is blessed that it is multiplied toward the ministries that we support and that it is multiplied back to us according to your word. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. We believe and receive that it's given back to us so that we can give generously again into the work of your kingdom. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.